the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. This is 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. We gather like this every weekend. We get on the air because of Alan Dempsey's uh, uh, skills, the engineering skills. They're, they're, they're off the charts, folks. And uh, Andrew Hurdlisk is our producer. Charles Martin is our guest from uh, Jacksonville, Florida. What if it's true? A storyteller's journey with Jesus. Charles, great to visit with you. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me today. Uh, give me an overview on this book. What What's uh, the bottom line here? I have written 14 novels. I was somewhere in the midst of my 11th or 12th novel, and I've known the Lord my whole life. I, I spend a lot of time with Him. I mean, I talk with Him. I talk with Him about my book, kind of everything. And I've talked at Bible studies for 10 or 15 years with a bunch of guys, and we've done life together. And one day, working on one of my novels, I just pushed back from my computer, and I said, Lord, I would love, like if you give me permission, I would love one day to sort of tell the story of you and me. And it's like just how I, how I think about your word and how I engage it and what it means to me. And as that idea sort of played out in my mind, I, I just sort of began wrestling with, what if this is, what if this really true, that this man named Jesus really was born, really did live, really did die, and really did raise again on the third day? And if that's true, and the things that he said are true, and that should probably shake some stuff loose in me. It should probably change the way that I live, see things, and I should probably forgive more quickly. And I should probably love more deeply, and I, I don't know. Just so that was sort of the the petri dish out of which the book birthed. Your first chapter is titled "The Word Becomes Flesh and Dwells Among Us." Uh, what do you write in the opening to this book? Yeah, that was an interesting sort of take. I, I, I really wrestled with, Lord, can I have permission? I mean, I'm a novelist, so I, I see life through story. And I said, can I tell your story, the story of your birth, through the eyes of the innkeeper? And just sort of try to, as much as I can, being faithful to the text and also remembering the admonition and revelation that it's really bad for anybody that adds anything to this book. How can I tell the story of Mary and Joseph coming into Bethlehem through the eyes of the innkeeper, seeing these two kids come in, and maybe what kind of conversation would they have, and just sort of add my own take on that story. I do, I try to tell it like a story, but I'm also trying to tell it as faithfully as I can to the text. So there's this balance and this tension in there where I'm, I'm trying to paint the color that comes off of the pages while being faithful to what the Lord says in the pages. Does that make sense? Let's uh, move to the second topic. We're all bleeders. That's the chapter title. Uh, fill us in. 
the story with the the woman with the issue of blood has always been one of my favorites mm. because I love her. I love her. I love her gumption. And when Jesus Jesus goes to the the country of the Gadarenes, he delivers the demoniac. Word spreads. He rows back across the Sea of Galilee. He steps foot on the beach in Capernaum. Jay Roos, the local synagogue leader, comes and says, hey, my daughter is at the point of death. Please come help me. He says, okay, sure. So they start walking. And this woman sort of elbows her way through the crowd. And we know that she's a daughter of Abraham. We know she's a Hebrew, a Jew. And we know that she's had this problem and this, this bleeding for 12 years. And what that means is that she's an outcast. She has no... Um, she has no authentic relationship with anyone in the temple. She has no relationship. She can't get in the temple. She's been unclean for over a decade. She's desperate. She spent every penny that she has, and she knows that Jesus is her only last, her last hope. And she knows this because of what the prophets foretold, that the Son of Righteousness will come with healing in his wings. And I talk about how the the shirt of Jesus, or the, the corners of his garment, are actually the kanaf, and they're considered wings, and David talks about this, and Malachi talks about this. and So I kind of try and bring you into the motivation of this woman, and how she, despite the fact that these big 12 guys are trying to keep her away from him, she elbows her way toward him and grabs a hold of his garment, and something really beautiful happens there. It says, in that instant, she was healed immediately, but Jesus is not finished with it. So he says to everybody, who just touched me? And Peter speaks up, you know, the loud mouth, says, well, Lord, everybody's touching me. And he says, no, wait a minute, I felt power leave my body. And mm. he raises this beautiful woman up in, his, in, in everyone's midst. And he heals the thing that really needs healing in her, which is her broken heart. And he does it with one word, and he calls her daughter. And that's the, that's the word that she's been needing to hear, because now she, in front of everybody, she's been welcomed back in and made whole and made clean. And I just love the picture of that woman from that moment, probably screaming at the top of her lungs, she called me daughter. So it's, it's been a longtime favorite of mine. When I've, I, I have some experience ministering in prison. I mean, I don't, I'm not there every weekend, but I'm in there a couple times a year, and whenever I'm there... I often, I bump into, and a lot of times it's in women's prison, I bump into women who I, are like bleeding in the soul. And the, the way that I pray for them, when I get a chance to pray for them, is that the Lord, that they would grab a hold of it, and that he would call them daughter. And a lot of times when they ask me to sign my book, they say, would you just, you know, they don't want me to put my, their name in there. They just say, would you just please write daughter? And I love that. So that's, that's the story of chapter two. I think, in a nutshell. Now I want you to move to the next topic you write about. It's called the Chorus of the Unashamed. Uh, explain that to us. Bartimaeus is at the gate in Jericho. We know he's been there a long time. He's mm. known by the everybody around the city, and he's begging. And it's a great place to beg because Jericho is one of the oldest cities in the world, 5,000-something years. There's something like 26 or 27 cities that have been built on top. So it's a headquarters for news, and like if you were going to put something on CNN or Fox in that day and age, you'd probably do it at the gate in Jericho. So he's heard the news of Jesus, and he's blind. And he's, you know, I mean, like how do blind people bathe and go to the bathroom? He's probably not real clean, probably doesn't look real great, probably sort of nappy, dirty fingernails, that whole thing. And as Jesus and the crowd get closer, he starts screaming at the top of his lungs, Son of David, have mercy on me. Well, the first time I read that, I thought, why does he say Son of David? And as I backed into it, 
the phrase son of David is a messianic claim. It, it means that the person screaming is saying for all the world to hear that Jesus is the revelation, the fulfillment of the revelation in the Old Testament, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, that he is the son of God sent. And so he's saying that in front of everybody. And he screams it over and over, son of David, have mercy on me. And everybody in the crowd is telling him to shush and shut up and be quiet. And don't you know Jesus has more important things to do than mess with you? And Jesus hears him and he says, wait a minute, bring that guy to me. And then I love it. I, it, it says he, he, he threw off his cloak, which I just, you know, I just love. He doesn't come with any pretension. He doesn't try and cover up. And he comes to Jesus and he's blind. So he. Like, how is he going to know it's Jesus? And in my mind, he reaches out with his hands, and he sort of reads the face of Jesus with his fingers. And then when he feels, figures out who it, who it is, I, my, in my mind, he hits, his, you know, he hits his knees, and his face hits the dirt, and Jesus bends over and whispers with a smile on his face, what do you want me to do for you? And of course he knows the answer. And Bartimaeus says, Rabbi, I want to see. And I just love the tenderness with which Jesus heals him, and he does, and I don't know, it's just a stark contrast that the whole world is waiting for the Son of God to, to, to show up, and there's the blind idiot on the gate screaming for all the world that he is there. And uh, I just, again, like the woman with the issue of blood, I love his gumption, I love his courage. When I get to heaven, provided the Lord lets me in, and I pass through judgment, there's a couple people whose necks I want to hug, and I want to hug his neck because I love his his faith and just the just his he had, like, no fear of man. He didn't care. He just he just wanted to get to Jesus, and I just love that about him. Now I want you to get to this topic. My guest is Charles Martin. He's in Jacksonville. Uh, what are you taking to the grave, question mark? One of the things that we've wrestled with in my Bible study, and I've met with this group of guys for— 12 or 13, 14 years now, so we know each other pretty well. And as we've walked more closely with the Lord, and the Lord has continued to sanctify us and purify us with His Word, He continually brings us back to a place of repentance. And one of the things for all of us, myself included, that has separated us from Him has been sexual sin. And I love the story of the woman caught in the issue of ador- in, in adultery, and she's brought before him. And in my mind, she's caught in the act, so it doesn't it's not like she has time to get either dressed or cleaned up. So they bring this naked woman. In my opinion, this is not said in scripture, but this is this is Charles speaking. They bring this naked woman into the temple, where all of these religious rulers are just sort of looking down their nose at her and mocking her. And saying, "All right, Jesus, what are you going to do with this one?" Charles, we've got to take a well, we got to take a break. But when we come back, I want you to fill us in on that. Uh, you're listening, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's ninety four point nine FM and AM nine fifty. The Word in Orlando. Charles Martin is our guest. His book, "What If It's True." Charles, just before the break, uh, you were in the process of filling us in on an interesting topic. I want you to pick that up right where we left it. The thing I love about that moment is the way that Jesus deals with her, and he doesn't shame her. Shame is not a tool in the box, the toolbox of Jesus. That, that, that one's only used by the enemy. But he looks at her, and after everybody leaves, because they can't throw a stone, because all of them are guilty of the very same sin, probably with which they've accused her, and he, he says to this woman, and I, I just believe it beautifully, he says, go, go and send them more. And he 
he doesn't shame her. He doesn't tell her she's got to somehow get dressed up or cleaned up to be there. He loves her. He wants her to be in his presence, and he deals with her so kindly. And as I feel like as the Lord dealt with us in this group of men over the years, I love the way he's brought all of us to varying degrees of freedom. Because there have been, I mean, every probably every sexual sin you can imagine we've seen in the group of men that we've dealt with. And it, you know... The Lord says it's for freedom that I've come to set you free, and the truth will set you free. Well, when you come to Him in repentance, He sets you free. So we've seen really cool freedom. We've seen really just shattered marriages healed. And when I mean shattered, I mean, even me, I'm sitting there thinking, I don't know that there's any way this one's going to get put back together. And yet the Lord in His mercy pieces back together marriages that I like were way, way gone. And it's just, that's the beautiful gift of repentance. And it's that just this, so the question, what are you taking to the grave, is for most of these guys, it was this idea that, you know, this is the sin I've committed. I'm putting it in this closet in the back of my mind. I'll never reveal this to anybody. It's going to the grave with me. I'll never confess it. And yet we found when we flung wide those doors and shined a light in our closet and confessed the sin that was there, that the Lord was faithful and tender and kind and healed us and delivered us and healed our relationships. And so that's sort of that one in a nugget. Now, I want you to move to the next topic. Talk to the Hand, J-C-I-L-O-A, all in capital letters. Oh, that was a, that was a hard day I was having when I, was, I had been harmed and wronged and I had this thing, and I just this something in my gut that I just was so angry, and I couldn't do anything about it. And I'd been reading and praying over my family and speaking the word over them, and it went on for months and months and months. And I just one one day I just had this really honest conversation with the Lord, and He led me to Peter and Caesarea Philippi and Jesus, and and Jesus says to Peter. At Caesarea Philippi, it was known in that day in the colloquial language as the gates of hell, and it was a temple to the god Pan, and they would sacrifice babies in there. And it was the worst place any of these Jewish men could think of going. And yet Jesus brings them up there, and, and in the midst of temple worship and prostitutes on the altar and blood sacrifice, and, and all of that is going on down below. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter affirms him and says, you are the Christ, and and Jesus says, upon this rock, I'll build my church. And I know there's been a lot made of that rock, but in my, in my world, that rock is that statement and that proclamation that, Jesus, you are the Christ, and you are the Son of God. And the thing that I think is interesting about that is that the proclamation of who Jesus is comes before the revelation that the Lord gives him six days later in the Transfiguration. So the proclamation came before the revelation, which I love. So I'm having this rough day with the Lord, and he took me to this, this scripture, and I just, in the midst of my pain and my difficult moment, I just, I said, Lord, you're, you're Lord of all. My circumstances don't dictate who you are. They have no bearing on, your, on you. You're good. You're true. You're faithful. You love me. You're my Father. I'm going to trust you, just like Job said, now, that, now I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. So... That was just, it, it became sort of my mantra, a mantra for the moment. It was J-C-I-L-O-A, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And I had these little rubber bracelets made, and I 
I still have them and still wear them. And it's just a reminder to me that even in the midst of my darkest, most painful moments, that nothing about Jesus changes, that he's, he really is Lord of all. My circumstances may not speak to that, but my circumstances don't dictate who he is. It's a, it's a faith thing. So <laughs> that was that chapter of the nugget. Now, I, <clears throat> I want you to move to this one, Charles. What's that you're carrying? Question mark. Yeah, that was. Um, I spent some time years ago, really looking into the to the crucifixion and, and mm. Jesus from the garden and sweating drops of blood and falsely accused and arrested and bringing being brought to Caiaphas' house and they they beat him and rip out his beard, punch him in the face, and beat him with rods. And he spends the night. The next morning, and he's taken down to Pilate's praetorium and he's strapped to a post and they whip him and the Roman flog and the the, the 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 whip is studded with nails and glass and so it doesn't whip like an Indiana Jones whip it it sort of plunges itself into the flesh and when it's pulled away it pulls away chunks of flesh and so mm. and Isaiah and prophet Isaiah says that Jesus became unrecognizable as a man I think that's the moment where Jesus was shredded and much of the tissue was removed from his back neck and face and and they strip him and make him carry a crossbar up to Golgotha. And uh, I talked a little bit about Simon and this beautiful black man from North Africa. Probably the last person to touch Jesus in tenderness was a black man from North Africa, and I love that. And then they nail him to the cross and mock him and spit on him and shove this sponge in his mouth and vinegar. And one of the things that I didn't understand at the time was that Roman centurions in their packs and their kits carried sponges and vinegar for sanitation. It was how they, it was Roman toilet paper. So when they shoved that thing in his mouth, it's, it's not, it's not a gift of mercy. It's mocking. And then he dies. He's got a left eye and it is finished. And they shoved this spear in his blood and water flow. So I, I looked at that and I began wrestling with Lord. I, I believe this is true. Now, what, what is it that, like, when I come to you and I see this, what about me do you want to take from me? Because I can't come to you with all my pretensions. i gotta, I got to lay down everything that I hold up equal to you, and that includes my idols. And So he began taking me sort of through a, a, a roller coaster ride, looking at the things that I hold up as my idols, that I give my attention and my affection to that are not him. And when Jesus says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me, it's really tough to pick up your cross if you're carrying your idol. You have to choose. So what's that you're carrying became the, the place that he led me, where I wrestled with my idols. And look, I still got them. Okay, I'll have to lay them down daily. But it was just a beautiful moment where he brought me to his cross and said, Charles, this is what I did for you. Now, you really want to follow me? Because if so, there's a cross in your future, and it means we've got to crucify some things in your life, and starting with my idols. So that, that was that chapter. Now, Charles, let's get to this topic. The toughest thing you and I will ever do. When Jesus is resurrected, it struck me that the first thing that he says to his disciples is if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And it just struck me that he's just defeated death, hell, and the grave. He holds the 
keys of death and Hades. He's alive and resurrected, and he's soon to ascend to the right hand of God Most High. And yet the thing that he says to us has to do with forgiveness. So it must be pretty important to us. And if you back up to J-C-I-L-O-A, Jesus Christ is Lord of all, that theme of the thing being stuck in my gut and that place of unforgiveness, the Lord really challenged me to take that thing that I could not control, that wound, that that hurt inflicted upon me and my family, and give it to him. And forgiveness is a choice. We're not going to feel like forgiving pretty much ever, in my experience. Unforgiveness is a, is a choice. We either choose or not to forgive someone. And forgiving someone doesn't mean we give up our desire for justice. It just means that we allow God to administer it in his own time and in his own way. Um, I saw as I sort of backed into this that when you look at the words of Jesus in the Gospels, that either four or five times he commands us to forgive, and he tells us, if you do not forgive, your Heavenly Father will not forgive you. I mean, that's a verbatim quote from Jesus, and if I'm really serious about following, i got to pay some attention to it and, like, do it. So I just really began wrestling with where are those places in my life that I've not forgiven people? Who am I who am I walking in unforgiveness with? Who needs to hear it from me verbally? Who do I need to just go to Jesus and say, Father, I, I forgive this person? And and sometimes the person doesn't have to be alive. It could be someone that, that, that's very much dead. I've had people that I've walked through with this that have had deceased parents, and, and yet, you know, their parents, abuse them or whatever, and there's this horrible wound, and so we've gone to the graveside, and they've just sort of, you know, vomited their their emotions out over this grave and spoken forgiveness over that person and in the presence of Jesus, and so it's just an encouragement to wrestle with the really hard stuff, unforgiveness being maybe the most difficult thing we ever at least in my experience, and in the guys that I walk with, the thing that is the most difficult for us to give up is I was wronged, I want judgment, I want justice, and I want it on my own terms. And when we forgive someone, we take all of that and we hand them to Jesus and we say, Jesus, they're yours, and I forgive them, and I tear up the IOU that I keep in my pocket, and I give up my right for judgment and justice, and I, I bless them in the name of Jesus. I think that's why it's probably tough. Charles Martin, best-selling author of 12 novels. His new book is called What If It's True? Thomas Nelson, the publisher. Charles, uh, tell us about your eighth topic, Choose This Day. Explain that. One of the things that I've wrestled with and people that have come to me, with, you know, and I've prayed with is sometimes I just feel like I've prayed into something that has like it's chronic. It, no matter much, no matter how much we pray, no matter how much we repent, no, it, it just it just like it's stuck there. And yet I know that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from from all unrighteousness. And we who believe in Him have been freed from all things. And He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So I know all of that. I know that there's nothing more powerful on planet Earth than the blood of Jesus. And yet sometimes. There are people that I pray with that they're just dealing with something that's been long and, and it's been like hereditary, it's in their family, 
It's a particular type of sin. It's a particular type of accident proneness. It's a particular type of anger. I, I don't. I don't know. It just. It seems like it goes back beyond them. And so I felt like the Lord led me into a study and an understanding of generational sin, and that the sins of the father can be carried down into the sins of the children. And how do we? How do we free ourselves from that? How do we? It, it, it became a way where I would look at the cross and. For most of us, the cross is the guarantee of our salvation, and that's true. It is absolutely that. But I also think it provides everything that we need in this day and age to free us from the chains that bind us or tether us to sin that came before us before we opened our eyes. And so it just became a way of looking at the blood of Jesus, that the blood of Jesus does more than just guarantee my eternal salvation. It cuts me free here today from the stuff that was passed down to me. So it, it became a way of praying in repentance. Lord, forgive me. Forgive my, forgive every sin that occurred before me by my family. Father, if there was sin in the Martin line or the whatever line, in any way, shape, or form, I am sorry for it, and I confess it before you. And forgive me and cut me free. So it became a way of looking at generational sin and the consequences of it and how to free us and our families from it. It became a way of looking at the blood of Jesus, that it really is the most powerful thing in this universe, and it really does cut us free. Char- <clears throat> Charles, what do you want readers and listeners now uh, to take from your book? Jesus was not some cool walkabout prophet. Uh, the man who, I, as I was writing this, I remembered the words of C.S. Lewis, a man who did and said the things Jesus did was not some cool prophet. He was either uh, on the level of a man with a, of a pro, of a poached egg, or he really is the Son of God. And we we have to look at the words of Jesus and, and choose. He really is who he says he is, or he's not. And I I believe his words are true. I believe he is who he says he is, and I believe that the the way to the Father is only through the Son. And it's it it, it was a it was a it is a beautiful walk in my opinion. I mean, just Showing my walk with Jesus. Charles Martin, author of What If It's True, has been our guest. We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. This is 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Charles Martin, our guest in that first segment from uh, Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, David McElvaney joins us from Durango, Colorado. Uh, His book is out. It's called The Intentional Legacy. Interesting discussion from Rebel to CEO of Wealth Management Company, Core Values for Creating a Meaningful Legacy. <clears throat> David, welcome. We're uh, happy to join up with you here. How are you? Great to be with you. Thanks. Doing great this morning. What is the intentional legacy title? What's that mean? Well, you know, we all leave a legacy. The question is, is it the legacy that we really hope for? Um, sometimes it's an, an accident. Um, we, we can be more intentional about what we want to leave as a legacy. I think one of the things that I try to reframe is uh, legacy as uh, the sum total of your values and the culture and the aggregate of your choices, which really brings the focus of legacy into the present moment, into the decisions that you're making today that ultimately impact your family and your life story. Uh, not just something that's left for sort of the end of life 
where you might be you know, leaving a bequest or, or transferring resources from one generation to the next. I would argue that the transfer of resources happens every day. You just have to more broadly define the resources you're talking about. So now we're talking about intangibles, uh, not just tangible wealth, but the intangibles which define love, loyalty, forgiveness, and so many of the things that make life together work or not work if you don't have them. Well, your book breaks down into sessions, and uh, that's where I want to start. Session one, Discovering the Art of Intentionality. Uh, What are you teaching in that session, David? You know, what we're interested in is defining a course and setting a trajectory. So for each person to sit down and say, whether you're 75 and wanting to define the course over the next 10 to 20 years of your life, or 45 and wanting to define the course of the next 30 to 40 years of your life, or 25, to be intentional means that you give pause to the things that are most important to you, the things that need to be accomplished. And as you're deciding what you're committing time and energy and and, and resources to, um, make sure you have a clear direction so that the little decisions that you make each day are complementing towards getting you towards those long-term goals. Then we get to session number two, casting a generational vision. Uh, what's that about? You know, when I think about culture, there's there's ethos, which is so important. If you're talking about corporate culture or family culture or any culture, the ethos that's there, the spirit that is alive and well, this is so, so very important. It's one thing for someone with a clear vision of what they want for their family to, to sort of cast that vision, but you also have to have buy-in. You have to have family who say, uh, or in any organization, this is really intriguing. This is really life-giving. This is something that I want to, to play in, to participate in. So a part of casting vision is really making sure that what you have, what you're creating, is really life-giving, is really appealing, where the next generation would say, yeah, and when you're done, that's exactly what I want to do. So casting a vision, um, I, I don't want to you know, leave it down to an adequate sales pitch from one generation to the next. It's far more than that. It, it gets back to that issue of ethos us. What is the spirit of the family? And is it something that people just say, I can't get enough of this. This is so meaningful to me. This is what I want for my family. Yeah, I'll make some tweaks and changes, uh, but I really appreciate the vision cast. I'm going to capture it, expand on it, uh, customize it for the next generation, but I really have deep gratitude for what was given and what was done. Uh, David McIlvaney is the author of The Intentional Legacy David, we've arrived at your third session. It's called Embracing Disturbance. Uh, Explain that. Well, I think this is a reality. All of us in life have disturbances of of one sort or another, whether it's a tragic health incident or uh, the loss of a job or the closure of a business or divorce or moral failure. There are a variety of things that fit into this category of disturbance. And I go back to what kind of a cultural response, thinking of the microculture of a family, what kind of a cultural response is there in those moments of stress and strain and pressure? Um, because this is not something uh, that can be or should be determined in the middle of that stress. 
you decide long before you get to the moment of stress and, and, and disturbance uh, how you're going to operate as a family. Will you pull together? Will you support each other? Will you love each other? Will you seek forgiveness, redemption, healing? Will you try to find the best aspects uh, of, of each family member? Or is there a blame game? Is there finger pointing? Is there accusations? Is there resentment where all of a sudden the culture is in, in full-fledged uh, maelstrom and, 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 and deterioration as opposed to, to coming together? I, one of the, the stories that I share in the book is when my wife was diagnosed with cancer, mm. we had an opportunity to either face that stress together and make some critical decisions which were productive and or or just literally crumble under the pressure of the moment. So uh, these are things that I think again you have to prepare for disturbance. It's a part of life. Just as legacy is an inescapable concept, I think that disturbance at some point in your life is inescapable. Guess what they used to say? Uh, the only two sure things in life are death and taxes. Well, death is one of those issues which is a disturbance. How? Will you respond to the variety of disturbances that you can encounter in life? And are you creating a culture, again, that seeks redemption, that seeks healing, that seeks wholeness, that seeks hope? And, and how do you cultivate that spirit within a family? That's really the essence of the intentional legacy, what we're after in that chapter particularly. David, in session number four, you talk about disposing of baggage. Uh, what does that mean? Well, being a business guy, I think of things in terms of balance sheets and income statements. And, you know, for me, when I look at baggage from an earlier generation, what we're really doing is accounting. Uh, you look at uh, the, the, the assets that you have from an earlier generation. Maybe that's, uh, you know, truthfulness, courage, um, a variety of things that you might have had demonstrated to you by earlier generations. And you say, these are assets, these are attributes that we want to carry forward into our, 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 the next generation. Well, you have liabilities as well. And those liabilities, um, again, these are things that you may not be as proud of. These may be the family secrets. They, these may be the things that have caused cyclical pain through generations. And you do the accounting function not to throw the previous generation under the bus, but to make a deliberate choice, an intentional choice. What are we going to include in this next cycle of growth within our family? Do we have to carry the baggage from an earlier generation into the next, or can we chuck those bags and with great gratitude look back and say, we see uh, imperfection and we see best efforts and we see redemption and we're grateful for the opportunities to learn but do we have to be locked into some sort of deterministic cycle of pain from an early generation? The answer is clearly no. But I think this accounting function of what am I working with? What are the resources that I have? What are the things that bother me that, that represent sort of the albatross from one generation to the next, the albatross around the neck? And, and what are the things that represent blessing? So it, it's, it's an, an accounting for both legacy baggage and legacy blessing. And, and again, I think there's a need for grace in this because guess what? Guess what? You will be the generation that's passing on both blessing 
and baggage to the next generation, and you better figure out how to extend grace backwards if you want to receive that same measure of grace from future generations for the things that you didn't get quite right. So uh, this is a really important chapter because you're dealing with the things that can really squirrel, uh, you know, future legacy endeavors. Now, let's get to this topic. Session number five, crafting your family identity. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, well, I, again, I think family identity is is something that is created by, you know, father-mother relationship. It's it's created by the things that we do, the, the deeds that we involve ourselves in, the delights that we engage with, the things that we love as a family. And this varies. You know, one family is going to love baseball. One family is going to love eating big meals on a, on a Sunday afternoon. One family is going to love taking walks in the evening. One family, this, this is, there's so much variety here in terms of what goes into creating family identity, but this is the stuff that I would say relates to ultimately to sentimentality. If you want to look back at your childhood experiences and say, these are the things that I love doing. I love doing, you know, pizza night on Fridays or movie night on Saturdays or these were the ways that we lived our lives, and it's who we became. It's who we are. This is what makes me a McIlvaney. This is what makes you... Again, these are the things that, that we practice, that we love, that we prioritize. Um, but a lot of this comes from the values of a parent and the things that you're willing to uh, promote and make a priority. Um, in a nutshell, uh, that's what I would say, you know, the times of your life uh, and the creating of family identity, obviously the nature of relationship between father and son, between mother and daughter, those parental or grand parental relationships are key. But there's also stuff that you do, the, the, the activities that you do. Um, you know, I, I, I created in, in our, our study guide uh, what I call uh, a family culture map. And that family culture map kind of links together the kinds of things that you want involved in your family life, the activities, the books, the conversations, the literature, the poetry, the time spent together where you practice active listening, where you're intentional about forgiveness, where you prioritize the kinds of things that make for soul growth within a family. These are all, uh, again, a part of the identity of someone who's, who's growing up within your little family unit. Uh, but I think when you set out an adventure, what do you do? Usually you pull out a map and say, here's where we're at, here's where we're going. And then you say, well, what do we need to get from point A to point B? And you start identifying what you're going to need on your journey. The family culture map is perfect for that, and it really ties into this idea of creating family identity and defining the things that are most meaningful to you. Uh, David McIlvaney is with us. His book is called The Intentional Legacy. <coughs> Excuse me. Session six. Shaping your spiritual and intellectual inheritance. Tell us about that, David. It's pretty it's pretty difficult for me to separate out uh the life of the heart and the life of the mind. Um you know, we are a book reading family. Uh, we're a conversational family, so at breakfast and at dinner time in particular, 
we're engaged in conversation. And the conversation is about ideas, and those ideas reflect the things that we're reading about and the things that we're thinking about. Again, this goes back to the books, the reading, the poetry, the things that our kids are reading, the things that my wife is reading, the things that I'm reading. Sometimes they're not interested in the things that I'm reading because it's more related to, to economics and public policy. And But you know what? We bring all those things to the table as we look and say, it's important that we grow even in areas where we don't have strong interests. Spiritual growth, that issue, these issues of, of treasure hunts and, and, and the legacy of the heart, you know, where, where are you going to prioritize soul growth in the life of a family? I would suggest to you that this has far more to do than showing up to Sunday school uh, on a Sunday morning. This has to do with the kinds of conversations that you have the way that you worship together as a family, the way that you feast together as a family, uh, where, where the, the spiritual dynamics of encouragement and forgiveness and, and discussion and openness, uh, these are things that you know, make for mentorship between one generation and the next. Where do you learn about grace? unless it's been extended to you. And that's really the first chapter in the book is where I learned about the grace that God's extended to all of us, but I saw it most tangibly in the grace extended to me by my father. And, and you know, my experience was, yes, I should have gotten in big trouble. And he, instead of sending me off as he had promised to a youth ranch, <laughs> I'd already spent a year there, he extended me an olive branch. And, and I learned grace in the context of family life and I understand the grace that my Heavenly Father extends to me because of what my Father demonstrated to me. So when, when you look at the spiritual and intellectual journey, we see courage, we see loyalty, we see friendship demonstrated in the lives of our parents. It's modeled, and we get to copy and learn of that. And this is where, again, I, I think family life is such a, an amazing place where if you want to consider it almost a hot house for growth, where you know just like you can put tomatoes, startlings, and, and and see them grow before you plant them out in the garden, that's really what family life is. Is my guest is David McIlvaney. His book is called The Intentional Legacy. We've got another segment with David. Stay with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's ninety four point nine FM and AM nine fifty The Word in Orlando. My guest is David McIlvaney from Durango, Colorado, his book, The Intentional Legacy. And, David, we've arrived at session number seven, Building a Financial Legacy. You know, this is where I think most people think the the entire book is going to be focused, Mm -hmm. because being in the financial services industry, you know, I think a lot of our clients thought, well, surely you're going to give us the the, the secret sauce for, you know, trust and estate planning and and moving wealth and resources from one generation to the next. And to me, honestly, there's so much more to legacy than tangible assets like land or, or, or a house or or stocks, or gold and silver, uh, there's so much more to it than that. And and so, yes, it's important to get your financial house in order. Yes, there are critical things that we cover there, but we're trying to address a bigger problem, that of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. Even the wealthiest families 
who create wealth in one generation tend to see it dissipated by the third or fourth generation. And every culture around the world has a description of this, clogs to clogs, rice patties to rice patties, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves, where, again, there's a loss of generational information, a loss of a transfer of critical data, and all of a sudden a failure to be able to continue with the wealth of an earlier generation. Now, yes, there is the financial aspect to this, but I would say just as important is the non-financial aspects, the loss of information in terms of values and and, and some of the things that we've already talked about, cultural aspects, uh, which if not underscored sufficiently, if there's not a shared identity, identity, if there's not trust, if there's not loyalty, if there's not courage, if there's not forgiveness and love and grace and appreciation, gratitude, who cares about the financial aspect? Um, But in this chapter, that's what we focus on is, is more of the hard structures where it makes sense to have a clear path moving from one generation to the next and being able to move move resources, physical, tangible resources, uh, from one generation to the next. Now, <clears throat> I want you to get to this topic, David. Writing the story of your life. That's session number eight. You know, I, I think to some degree we think about we think about the life that we're living, and, and we live moment to moment without a, a real uh, awareness of the narrative as it's playing out. It's just kind of, you know, particularly when you've got kids or, or you're, you're swamped with grandkids in the middle of the summertime, you know, it, it's almost like survival tactics for the family. How do we get through this moment, this argument, you know, this dropping off of three kids to five locations? And you know, there's a, a frenetic pace that doesn't really allow for us to see that this magical story is being written. In the first chapter, we start by saying it's really important that you define a course. And, and, and as we move towards the last chapter, it's equally important for you to redefine what the narrative is, the story that's being told. There's points in your life where you need to refocus, whether it's in your 50s and 60s, and you might be looking at a, at a career transition or even considering retirement. What is the story of the second half going to look like? If you've lost a spouse and you're now trying to say, what is my path forward? It's really important that you pause and say, there is a story being told here. How does this story progress in the next chapter? And so I I, I do think it's very important to continually reassess. What I do in, in, in this chapter in particular is make sure that one generation understands where they came from and what they're about. You you can do that by having a family code of conduct, a constitution, if you will. The things that say, this is who we are. This is what we're about. This is where we're going. And, you know, the mottos that come to mind that kind of play into our family life. I know I hear this almost every week from my kids. As McIlvaney's, we don't give up. We don't quit. Mm. And so when you fall down, what do you do? Just like David did from a, a moral perspective in the Old Testament, he fell down and he got back up again. Well, my kids will see that from a moral perspective. They'll also see it if we're skiing on the ski slopes. If you fall down, is it time to cry and take off your skis and slide down on your bum, or is it time to get back up and ski again? This is a part of life. You fall down, you get back up again. There's issues like that that translate into 
how we live our lives and how we move forward from one chapter to the next. And that's kind of the, the, the point of chapter eight, strategy for charting the generations, just some very practical tips. David, I want you to expand on this quote of yours. Marriage breeds responsibility. Responsibility births intentionality. Intentionality precedes legacy. It So many things for me started coming together after I got married. I think there's, there's a degree to which, as, as a young man, you are free to not think about the future. It doesn't mean you shouldn't, but there's there's a freedom to not think about the future. All of a sudden, getting married, you think to yourself, it's different now. I've got to think differently about our life, not just my life. And as you move from the singular to the plural, all of a sudden, legacy becomes much more of a concrete concept. And it doesn't have to be that way. I'm not saying that it should be that way, that somehow in singleness we don't think about legacy. I'm just saying the practical aspects in my life, I didn't as a single man. I did see more clearly what the future needed to be and how important my decisions were in the context of being married. And then start stacking on three or four kids. And for me, it now becomes very clear the impact and the ramifications of every choice that I make. Every yes is a no to something else, and that has an impact on our family life. And I have to be thoughtful and intentional. So to me, this this initial decision uh, of marriage feeding into a world of intentionality with every decision uh, is, is, is very clear, as a very clear progress and, and process. What do you want listeners and readers to take from our discussion? You know, I would say this, um, relationship is, is sometimes difficult. And, and without hope and, and a spirit of redemption in relationship, uh, you know, the future is, is, is and can be very grim. Um, so when you bring, and I've got 10 things at the tail end of the book, which sort of are a summation of the most important aspects of the book, and, and, and I would summarize it in one. You could shrink those 10 into one. Create a culture where hope and redemption are alive, and, and you will find a generational aspiration from one generation to the next to recreate that life-giving environment. Hope and redemption. Hope and redemption. These are things that give life and ultimately want to be uh, duplicated to some degree by future generations because of the life that has been given in that context. That's the kind of culture you want to create. What is next for you, David? (laughs) What is next for me? Um, You know, we're fully engaged with, with four kids actively pursuing adventures and character development. Uh, We've got kids coming into puberty and and needing a clear sense of of who they are as distinct individuals, not just in this family construct, but also who they are as individuals. And and to be able to mentor uh, my sons and daughter through that process, it's a real priority for us. So I go back to our family culture map, and we're looking at ways in which we can 
promote and encourage maturity, intellectual maturity, emotional maturity, spiritual maturity. And, and so that really, you know, whether it's Mary Catherine and I hitting date nights, which we usually do on a Tuesday night, um, this is the topic of conversation for us many times is, is how is everybody doing and, and how, what, what are the next steps for us in terms of promoting intellectual and, and emotional uh, and, and, and spiritual maturity within the home? My guest has been David McElvaney uh, from Durango, Colorado. The book, The Intentional Legacy. David, wonderful to talk to you. I'm so pleased that uh, we had this opportunity. Your, your book is powerful, and I think this interview was the same. Thanks a million. Thank you so much. Grateful to be your guest. David McElvaney is the CEO of the McElvaney Financial Companies, International Collectors Associates, ICA Europe, and McElvaney Wealth Management. Uh, the book we've been talking about, The Intentional Legacy. We've got a wrap-up right after this here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. Just stay plugged to those uh, call letters all day long, and you'll be blessed. Uh, folks, hang in there. We'll be right back for the wrap. Folks, thanks so much for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. In the first segment, Charles Martin, a very descriptive uh, interview, uh, talking about his book, What If It's True? And then uh, David McElvaney from his office in Colorado joined us, uh, talking about his book and the discussions in the book, The Intentional Legacy. Uh, please uh, check out my most recent book. <clears throat> it's called Character Carved in Stone, about the 12 benches at West Point with a different word carved into the end of each bench, designed to motivate and inspire those men and women who are in school at West Point. I think you'll enjoy it. Amazon, always a wonderful way to order books. This book is in Barnes & Noble as well in the uh, business section. So, uh Take a, take a peek. We'll be back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. This is 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.